when I do that sort of agent matchmaking, I'm really looking at their personality, the type of books they want, and the type of career or future they want. So with UTA or WME or even Folio, which is a major agency, a big player, they had more of a celebrity touch. They have more of connection with celebs. They have more film and TV press. They have more of what we call a back offer. So just like they do a little bit of everything, right? They're there to manage your career in a lot of ways. And that's a great thing. And a lot of clients need that. For some clients, that would be overkill. They have other managers. They have other talent people. Or maybe they don't even want film TV press. They just want somebody to help them with the book. In that case, a smaller agency or a very literary-focused agency could be helpful. I have to say that a regular literary agent wouldn't have connections or tentacles into film TV speaking. It's just not as big of an agency. Whereas someone like CAA or UTA or WME, they're going to look for opportunities to maximize the money for themselves by maximizing the opportunities for their client. Hey friends, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career by learning how to blend passion with business. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who works tirelessly to bring you publishing insights and writing tips that will help you write a great manuscript, find your dream agent, and give you the best shot at hooking that agent. In today's episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Megan Stevenson about facts and myths about traditional publishing, as well as anything in all traditional publishing, how to find literary agents, build good relationships with them, along with a multitude of other great advice that can support your dreams of writing and publishing a book with a traditional publisher. For a little more information about Megan, Megan is an entrepreneur, educator, ghostwriter, book editor, and an expert in traditional publishing who has worked as an editor at the largest trade publishers in the United States, including Simon & Schuster and Penguin. She launched her own business, Megan Stevenson's Books, to directly help entrepreneurs and experts get book deals. Megan is passionate about helping people through the written word. Clients have earned more than $4 million from major publishers, including Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, Hachette Books, and Hay House, among many others. The projects that Megan and her team work on improve the lives of readers. Some of her success stories include Ray McDaniel's Gender Magic, Jamie Sears' How to Love Teaching Again, Kyle Schwartz's I Wish My Teacher Knew, and I Wish for Change, Jamila Soffrent's Journey to Launch, Nita Bushman's That Sucked, Now What?, and Denise Stethfield Thomas's Chillpreneur. Before launching her own business, Megan was responsible for multiple New York Times bestsellers, including Hot X Algebra Exposed by Danica McKellar, The Meaning of Matthew by Judy Shepard, The First 20 Minutes by Gretchen Reynolds, and The Bro Code. I am so excited to share Megan's expertise and wisdom with you today. I hope you have your notepads because there's a lot to learn. And if you don't, maybe listen to this again and take your notes later. For now, sit back and enjoy. I hope that you learn as much from Megan as I did. Thanks so much for joining me on Lit Match today. I'm so excited to pick your brain about traditional publishing. I know you have so much to offer and so much expertise to share with us. Thank you, Abigail. I'm thrilled to be here. Before we get into it, you are Megan Stevenson of Megan Stevenson's Books. And 
I follow you and and I'm obsessed with the great content that you're continually putting out there. In case listeners don't know who you are, I'd love for you to share your career path. Can you just let us know what brought you to starting your company with Megan Stevenson's books and what you do now? Of course. I've been in publishing for almost 20 years. I was like a lot of people in college, wasn't really sure about what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. And I'm originally from Wisconsin, went to school in Minnesota at Winona State University. And I was a double major because I wanted to study abroad. And so my majors were actually communication studies and English. And the reason I bring that up is because everyone assumes that I was an English major when I actually wasn't. I was a communication studies major, loved academia, loved communication, loved speech. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I took an English class and I was like, oh, maybe I'll just go be a writer. I'll do MFA, you know, because I didn't want to go down the communication studies grad school route. My professor at that point, she was like, look, you won't get into any of these MFA programs. You're not a good enough writer. And I was like, that's harsh. Thanks, Beth. And she was like, well, you're a brilliant editor. You should go into publishing. There's this whole world of publishing. She was a published author, ironically, with Penguin. And so she was like, you should look into graduate schools in publishing. And there's one in New York. There's one in Boston. And so she found, I found Pace and Emerson. Got rejected from Emerson, which is a blessing because I'm not literary in the least. It's an Emerson's program. It's very literary. And another Pace. Moved to New York on Labor Day weekend in 2004. And the first weekend I was there, I lined up internship interviews at Simon and Store and at Fairchild Publications, which ran a bunch of magazines. Didn't get the gig at Fairchild or Brookman Books, but I did get the gig at Simon. And so an intern at Simon and Schuster, totally fish out of water. Everybody else that there, all the other assistants were like from Ivy League schools, like fancy places. And I was just there in like New York and company clothes, hoping I wouldn't get found out. But I did get found out because I ended up getting hired for a job as an assistant there by Thanksgiving. So started my internship in September, was hired officially in November because I started doing work for another assistant that was better than the work she was delivering. And everybody sort of noticed. So she got fired. I got hired. And that was the beginning of my career in traditional publishing. So at Simon, I had the very good fortune of working on every single kind of book there was. Street lit, cookbooks, visual books, four color books, books about dance, books about science, books about memoirs, mysteries, thrillers, psychological thrillers, all sorts of things. And where I kind of landed was on what we call prescriptive nonfiction, how-to books, basically. I have a really commercial taste. Another my taste for books as well. I read some literary fiction, but like for the most part, my books are really, really commercial and not intentional. Uh, the music I like is really commercial. And what we mean by that is that like it's kind of an all-comers situation. It's very accessible, applies to a lot of people, could in theory sell to like millions of people. And so I fell in love with prescriptive nonfiction, left Simon & Schuster after coming up with the idea for and publishing a book called The Bro Code, which was based on the show How I Met Your Mother, sold like 400,000 copies which is crazy because guys don't buy a lot of books, but when they do, they all buy it. <laughs> so that was sort of how that worked. And I went to Penguin in 2008 and I was working on some celebrity memoir. I got to work with Danica McKellar on her books about math for girls, which are, are still just amazing. If you have a daughter that is in fifth to seventh grade, those books are going to be awesome for them. Her boys too. And I worked on all different kinds of books there too, but a lot of prescriptive nonfiction. And that's really where I deepened my love of that. I got to use my English background and also my communication studies background because a lot of those books 
have a lot of science in them. And so part of communication studies was learning to read academic articles and all of that. And so I took that experience. I was able to apply it. Around 2011, 2012, I started to realize that I was in a dead-end job. I was too naive and inexperienced to realize that the position I took was in a very small imprint. There wasn't any room for growth. There was a lot of competition in the company and like not that anybody had a personal vendetta against me or anything, but there definitely wasn't a path for me to succeed there. And my boss, who was very, very supportive, basically told me that, which was a blessing. I decided to start interviewing the collaborators I worked with. And every single one of them told me, you should do this job. You'd be great at it. So my parents are entrepreneurs. They just sold their business after four years of running an insurance agency. So I didn't even think twice. I plotted my exit. At the time, I was working. This is a crazy thing. So publishing pays nothing. So I was making $40,000 a year in 2011 in New York City. I was expected to wear Saks level of clothing because historically, women who worked in that field had family money. And still to this day, a lot of the women in that field, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends have like family money. One of my girlfriends at Penguin, she like had an apartment in the West Village. Like that was not her money. That was going into that apartment. Do you know what I mean? It just wasn't. And this, you know, I don't have any problem with that. This is like not my background. And so I was working nights at the container store, which another friend at, in publishing had hooked me up with because it was safe because they didn't want you to have a second job. That was really frowned upon. But this job was literally in the basement of the container store in Chelsea in Manhattan. And so no one would see you. And so you could just do that. And so I had that job and I had two reviews on the same day. So my boss at Penguin, oh, you're not going to get a raise here. It's going to be that 3%. There's no path for promotion. That is what it is. It wasn't necessarily all criticism, but it felt pretty defeating, right? There's like, you're doing a great job, but there's no remedy. There's no advancement. There's no anything. When I went down to the container store, I'm sitting there in the container store basement. And he's like, look, you're not doing what you could be doing. So you're going to get a 4% raise. So notice that was more than Penguin. He's like, but we have the ability to go up to 8%. And he's like, and here's the six things we want you to do over the next 30 days get that 8%. I thought that was really fair. And then when I went home, I crunched the numbers and I realized that I was getting paid more by the container store than I was by Penguin. And I was more valuable to the container store than I was to Penguin. And so that was the day I decided to quit and start my own business. And in order to do that, I sort of did it. I, I invented quiet quitting, I think, because I, when I heard that term, I was like, oh, that's what I was doing. When I left, my boss was really surprised because I don't think she thought I was going to do it. I think she thought I was going to go to another publisher. But when I interviewed with other publishers, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be on the side of the author. I want to not have to deal with all the bullshit here. I'm just going to get out of Dodge. And the day I walked down the Penguin, not only did I ship myself a box literally this big of office supplies, that I still have some of them. I'm just running out of them now, 10 years later. But I also put all my stuff in my office in a container store bag and walked out with that. And it was like a big moment for me. So that was 10 years ago, the summer of 2012. I was a sole prop for about six, seven years. I would do proposals. I would do manuscripts. I would you know, write them, edit them. A few of my books got big book deals. Most of them didn't. I was existing all over the place. And in 2018, I met a business coach who was my client. And I was writing a proposal for her. And at the end of every single call, she would kind of coach me. This is why you don't charge hourly. This is why... But you want to scale your business. This is how you get out of this debt cycle or referral ghetto or whatever those things were. And I, I started to believe her. And because part of my job is inhaling all of my clients' content constantly, 
I was like, okay, I'm going to sign up for this. So I maxed out my credit card to enroll in one of their programs, did all the stuff that was in the fall of 19. And in 2020, I went from getting about $60,000 in sole prop revenue to 250000 and a small team. And we basically tripled that revenue in the last few years. We narrowed the focus. That was the first thing I did was I narrowed the focus to only entrepreneurs and experts, only had two books, only traditional publishers, mostly proposals. And our service offerings have expanded because the market needs more than that. But that's the, still the bulk of our offers. And we have great results. We've earned $5 million for clients. 85% of our clients who finish proposals with us get major deals with major publishers. Hay House, Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster, Heber Collins, all these big names. And then 100% of our clients get literary agents, which actually is my bar. I can't ever guarantee anybody a book deal, but agents work on specs. So they work on commission. And so when I bring them a book that's worthy of a six-figure book deal or a book proposal that's worthy of a six-figure book deal, that's basically free money for them, very low-cost money. And so if I can't get you an agent, if I can... Like then I feel like my job has been fulfilled because the publishers are crazy and they make subjective decisions based on no data at all. And so we don't know what they're going to do. The agents don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. And so it's really speculative. Still, we're just making really good bets. And like my husband at the crafts table, he does really well at the crafts table because he plays the simulations and he reads the room and he leaves the bad tables early and all of that. And so we kind of take that same approach to our work. That's a really long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> but a ton of information in it. As you were talking, I was thinking, oh, I love that you invested in yourself and really yes. invested in growing the business side of it. Often we have a passion and we master our craft, but we also have to master the business side mindset. And if you are going to survive and build a career, not just survive, but build a thriving career in traditional publishing, you need to blend both. Let's talk about literary agents 100% of your clients mm -hmm. get a literary agent. And with that, of course, comes matching really an agent that's right for a project. So first, your yes. expertise, you have to be able to identify what would be a six-figure deal or yes. have the potential to be a six-figure deal. So I'd yes. love to know your thought process. And I know part of that is intuition and experience. So you would just know and I'm reading the market, but I'd love to know any insights on that. And then I would love to know how you go about researching Larry agents to make sure that you are finding the best fit for a certain project. So I don't guarantee anybody can get an agent ever. 100% of our clients in the last two years have gotten them though. I can back that up a little bit. But in order to get a six-figure book deal, you need three things. We call them the three Ps. Potential, platform, proposal. Potential is what I'm looking at when I review somebody's application or when they show up in my world. And so the first thing we're looking at is the idea. Is the idea... Interesting. Do we think it's marketable? What's going on in the current market around this idea right now? A lot of ways I'm making a sale in a lot of respects. And so I'm almost anticipating the objections from everybody up and down the line in terms of the literary agent, the publishers. I'm measuring the market. Like right now, something that's happening is that entrepreneurs, online entrepreneurs are getting a little pushback in the marketplace. And it's probably because the publishers made bad bets in our industry. We all know that there's a lot of empresses with no clothes on where they're like, it all looks flashy, but they don't actually, the influencer market, they don't make any money. So that's sort of somebody somewhere got burned and now they've all decided, you know, <laughs> it's like you dated one redhead and now you're like, I'll never date a redhead again. They have, the, they have those moments, right? And so relationship books right now are really tough. So it's like, okay, well, 
how it does this differentiate? Can we make the argument, or is this going to be like a, they're just close to it, and so they're never they're not going to go for it? There's certain things too that are really obvious to me that I'm like, oh, if I can't see this book, or if it's like every other book, we get a lot of leadership books, and if that's not unique, or if it feels like it's a Brene Brown redo, or like last year this is eased up because it was a fad, and a lot of white ladies trying to write DEI books, and I was like, yeah, no. That's not going to fly for lots of reasons. Versus we had a client. She was a client, but we were really close to making her a client. Where she was a white lady, but she'd been doing DI work for like 15 years in Oakland. It's like less different. Then we can sell this, right? So it's a little bit that. Some of it too is the author. So we had an author show up on a call um, recently where I was, she was so negative. Everything was somebody else's fault. And I was like, I, I'm not going to work with this. I'm not bringing a pain in the ass client to the agents I know or the editors I know. I'm not doing that to them. Life's too short for that. So idea, like how the person shows up, in a lot of ways, I'm looking for the same thing people used to look for on Star Search. I compared it once. We have a client who's a musician. I compared it once to being an AR person in music. It's like, hey, I'm looking for the next talent. I'm looking for somebody that they can walk and talk on TV. Like somebody who would be on the Today Show. Somebody that's charming and winning or maybe doesn't even recognize that in themselves, but, but could be nurtured to get there. That's sort of what we're looking for. So those are all the things I'm considering when I look at potential. Then we look at platform. So an author platform is all the different ways you could promote or sell your book. For those of you on a podcast, just picture me like wiggling my like spirit fingers. And it's like all the tentacles, right? So you could have speaking. You could have facilitation where you do workshops. You could have like speaking as like keynotes and presentations, right? Facilitation, like you're teaching your frameworks, social media at whenever which ones you're doing, LinkedIn, TikTok, Facebook, whatever, Instagram. You're friends with reach, right? If you're like in with celebrities or whatever, or like even big internet famous names, if Amy's Hillfield's your mentor, for example, right? All those sorts of people. Plus then your own internal stuff. So your own email list, which is still queen to me because you own it, right? Unlike social. All those different areas, press and media, but your contacts. If your book could be open for course adoption or corporate buys or bulk buys, all of those things are like your tentacles. So we're looking for that. And a certain amount I can find through a Google search because that's what a literary agent is going to do. That's what an editor is going to do is Google you. And so like that's what we're looking for first. Sometimes there's sneaky things that we don't know behind the paywall, like facilitation, like your email list, like your connections. But for the most part, we want to make sure that when someone Googles you, you look impressive. You look like you could sell 20,000 books in a month because that's what the traditional publishers are looking for. And then we go to proposal, which is what me and my team create. It's done for you or done with you service. And then we turn around and introduce you to agents. So there are a lot of agents out there. I love the idea. I think I learned this from Marie Forleo. The idea of looking at brands or even at personal people, like experts, as models of cars. I like to think of myself as like the Mercedes-Benz of the industry. I'm fancy, but I'm not flashy. I'm expensive, but I'm worth it <laughs> for the comfort, right? The one time I drove a Mercedes, I was like, this is the poshest thing, right? Agents are the same way. So there are some that are Mercedes. There's some that are Subarus. There's some that are Hondas, right? For the most part, most of my clients want something between like a Toyota and a Land Rover, depending. And there's all different kinds of agencies. So there's everything from the big corporate talent agencies like United Talent and William Morris and Teffer, WME and UTA, all the way down to like one woman shops. And there's a lot of variants and it doesn't, 
really the power of them to get you there, like the best deal is really about three things. Their connections in the industry, their past success, which you can find them publishersmarketplace.com and their passion for the project. Because if an agent's lukewarm on it, it doesn't make any sense because they're not going to show up with the same passion. There's all energetics and all things, I, I think. And so with that, you don't want the energetics to be meh. Sometimes they don't get it. And sometimes we have to like arm wrestle. I have to arm wrestle them a little bit into it. We have a book right now out on submission with editors and this client lost her agent. Her agent got fired, which is a rare thing. It only happened like twice in my entire career that that happened. And so I was like, okay, great. Well, the agency's going to work with her. But they were like, we don't get this book. And I was like, no, no, no. You don't understand this category. Let me explain it to you. And I explained it to them. And then they were like, gung-ho. And now, of course, she's getting great reception from publishers. But like, there does take a little bit of education on the outside with litter agents from me. Now, as an author who we're speaking to now, that shouldn't be the case. You should be able to do your due diligence and go out to a wide amount of agents. I've heard authors, especially on the fiction side, go out to 50, 60, 100 agents. Totally normal. You can do it in rounds that can kind of organize it. I think that's helpful. It's like, I'm going to go up to 25 and write down how long they say they're going to take to respond to queries if they even offer that, honor that, and then go to the next 25 and don't take it personally. Because the query hole, you know, the black hole of query email inboxes is real. And agents are doing this delicate balance of nurturing their existing clients, shepherding clients through the publishing process, making sure their covers aren't ugly and advocating for them, submitting new books, maintaining relationships with editors and publishers through drinks and, and lunches and Zoom calls, and then going and nurturing new talent, right? And so often the query inbox is their last chance. And I've seen authors do this at every stage of the game, especially entrepreneurs, because we're used to launching on a dime. We're used to being like getting up in the morning and being like, I have this great idea. My team's going to orchestrate it tomorrow. Well, she and taking themselves out of the game because that agent is frazzled, that agent is overwhelmed, and now you're in their ass and it's just not worth their time. Because I think something that happens that everyone underestimates is how many people want to be others. I think I answered both the questions, right? Yes. So to recap, there were three big things that you talked about that you said when you're looking at an agent. And um, one of them was passion. One of them was projects. So you can find that in Publishers Marketplace. What was the first one? Their past experience. Past experience. Okay. And then that yeah. looped into agencies and the different types of agencies and what a writer might be looking for specifically in a relationship, mm -hmm. big agencies, boutique agencies. You said one woman agencies in, in some cases, right? Yeah. How, yeah. how do you help your clients decide what would be the best fit for them and what type of agency they would go to in addition to who their agent is? Yeah. So when I do that sort of agent not making, I'm really looking at their personality the type of books they want and the type of career or future they want. So with UTA or WME or even Folio, which is a major agency, a big player, they had more of a celebrity touch. They have more of connection with celebs. They have more film and TV press. They have more of what we call a back offer. So just like they do a little bit of everything, right? They're there to manage your career in a lot of ways. And that's a great thing. And a lot of clients need that for some clients that would be overkill they have other managers they have other talent people or maybe they don't even want film tv press they just want somebody to help them with the book in that case a smaller agency or a very literary focused agency could be helpful i didn't say that a regular 
literary agent wouldn't have connections or tentacles into film TV speaking. It's just not as big of an agency. Whereas someone like CAA or UTA or WME, they're going to look for opportunities to maximize the money for themselves by maximizing the opportunities for their client. So this really depends. A lot of times, too, smaller authors don't have a chance with those folks because they are just working with like the top, top, top people. That's a differentiator as well. I like to give my clients a variety of people, a variety of styles, and I'm just really trying to avoid obvious mismatches. I had one client, bless your heart, who was just so demanding, and I was not going to put her with an agent. He expected clients to come to him and say, hey, I have a problem. First, does this client was like, you should know I have a problem. This is going to be a bad situation. And so... Yeah, that, that's a really interesting. Like, we want to make sure we're avoiding those obvious image fashions. I usually go out to, with our proposals, anywhere from three to five agents. And then they have meetings usually with three out of that, maybe two. And then hopefully they get into a Sophie's Choice situation where they really have a hard time choosing. And often those literary agents do that. Getting the no from my client will be like, how's that person doing? Did it sell? Like, they still are invested in it because they care and they they want the author to succeed, even if it's not with them. That's great. And that's something that I'm always trying to remind writers is that it is a business partnership. A lot of the times there can be this power divide. They feel like an agent has this huge source of power over them. We have to remember that they do work on commission. They're not going to make money unless they yeah. believe in the project and they're doing yeah. their job as well. So the other piece of information that you shared that I thought was really interesting was sounds like you for your clients take those proposals to the agents so do you actually do the querying for them when you're working with them or do they still query but you help them craft the query and then you introduce them How so does that i work? don't need to query i have their numbers okay but, okay yeah. so this, this is what's awesome okay so i'll back it up so editors and agents have this very symbiotic relationship and, and agents collaborators do too, just depends on the collaborator. So when I was an editorial, uh, this is a great example. When I went to Penguin, my boss gave me a company Amex and said, go, go talk to some agents. And I made a list of 50 agents and I went out to a lot of drinks and a lot of lunches. I had a relationship with a lot of agents and editors already. By the time I went and, you know, ended like when I left Penguin, for example. And so now I have a really close relationship with, I would say about 10 litter agents mm -hmm. where when I want to go out and I really know probably like no, like would be able to spot on the street and they'd stop and talk to me about a hundred right. litter agents who work in prescriptive nonfiction, mm -hmm. work on the kind of books I do. And so with those agents, I can just send an email or send a text. Mm -hmm. I have a project. Do you want to take a look? And so I don't need to query at all. Now, most authors are not in that camp, but you, you're right about the power dynamic. What I see happening, and it's completely not necessary, is this idea of like agents are up on a pedestal and authors are saying, please, please, please approve of me. Please, please, please like me. Please, please, please like say yes to me. And that energetically is it is repellent to some people. My husband and I actually call this the Barcelona rule because we went to Barcelona and we went on this trip and we were on the bus and for whatever reason I was trying to impress the people we were with my husband's like what are you doing don't try to impress them let them come to you all right fine I'll try it this one time right so I just ignored these people stop trying to get their approval stop trying to engage stop trying to do everything a couple hours later now they're all coming to me what do you think and I was like why don't you want to go to my husband's like because 
you stop trying to get their approval. You just like, here I am. I'm going to order the rosé. I'm going to ask this interesting question. I'm going to do this thing for myself. And all of a sudden, the power dynamic shook. And they're coming to me now suddenly, right? And so I'm not saying that that needs to happen with the Barcelona rule needs to be applied to agents. But I think authors can maybe chill out a bit and know that their work has good value, especially if you hired somebody from the outside, whether it's an editor or a book coach or whoever, to look at it first. I think that's really helpful. Do your due diligence with queries. There's so much information, especially for fiction authors online, about how to submit and all of that. Just get it from a few little sources. Slow your roll. Put the $25 down on Publishers Marketplace. Book publishing is still going to be here in six months. It's totally cool. Follow the rules that the agents are setting. Uh, you know, honor their boundaries. And understand that it is a business and it is this symbiotic relationship. And be like, yes, I am Abigail. Here's my novel. Really appreciate it if you look at it. Oh, you said on Twitter that you were 90 days behind in queries. I gave you an extra 90 days. My book, my query has been with you for six months. Can you just tell me where it is from the line? Right. And it's like that line of respect. I think that's where it becomes a relationship. So many people don't realize how many people it takes to publish a book. So mm-hmm. being grateful and respectful and working together and collaboratively and having that symbiotic relationship in a respectful way is going to get you further. You don't need to be the jerk. You don't you need tell to the squeaky really wheel in this, in this chase. The squeaky wheel was not the cheese. Following up occasionally. It, especially according to the submission guidelines, is good. But most agents I know, especially the really reputable, like high-end ones, are if you don't hear from me in three months, it's a pass. And it's like, okay, cool. I'm just going to take that and work with it. Because it is a business. There are a lot of authors. There's so many authors. Like we're in a niche, 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 niche. And we still talk to 250 people a year and yep. turn down 30% of people. So like, really there's like, I don't even know how many people actually like fill out our quiz or anything like that. It's just a lot of people. Another thing that you had said earlier was that sometimes you're even teaching agents about categories and about markets. And of mm-hmm. course, a lot of this comes from because you really do understand your niche. So you understand this area of expertise. Recently, there was an agent who sent out a newsletter and talked about how even now, well, number one, why it's really important to have strong mentors in this business, because even 20 years into the business, she's learning things from her mentor. And then the other thing is that you have to be able to, like, it's it's common knowledge that you're predicting what's going to be coming out in two, three years ahead. So yeah. when you're accepting, when you're giving an advance, when you're offering an advance for a deal, and maybe this is, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is different for fiction versus nonfiction, but we do always need to be thinking what's going to be coming out in two to three years instead of what's coming out tomorrow. And yes, as a writer, I think that, you, well, number one, you need to understand that. But two, it can become very overwhelming for writers to think like, oh my gosh, like how am I supposed to be writing what's supposed to be coming out in mm-hmm. three years versus what's coming out now? If there's something on an agent's manuscript wish list, you shouldn't be writing that that just to get that agent and starting your book today because by the time that it's ready to query, that agent might have changed their taste or the market might have changed. There's so many factors that come into this. Could you just shed some light on what are some tips that can make that can make studying the market bite-sized or manageable for writers? And when they are crafting their stories, how can they focus on what they want to write versus what they think they need to write? And at the same time, understanding how that can work in the marketplace. Does that make sense? 
Yes, totally. So there is a little bit of focus on what's happening today because you never know when there's going to be like an atomic habits or like a station 11, right? That's just going to like stay in the market for a while um, or twilight or something like that, right? Was like just going to stay in the market for a while. So that's important. I think everybody should write the book that they want to write because when you try to like, that's just a literary version of people pleasing. When you try to like, say that whatever you're doing and whatever you think is going to work. And there's no way to anticipate that, right? Publishers are often wrong. They often like, I remember when everybody was chasing down YouTubers and I was like, there's a reason these people are on YouTube and not writing content, right? And their users are looking at, you know, 10 minute videos, not 300 page books. And so when the YouTubers by and large, their books failed, I was like, well, duh, right? So that's the first answer is that you should write what you want to write, not anything else, because a good book is going to sell every day. And that's something that nobody remembers. A good book is going to sell every day. You know, some of the biggest books in my career, the book code lasted longer than we thought, probably like a few years. But like now it feels dated and misogynistic and not cool. Right? But like in 2008, it's totally acceptable, totally right on the right on the on the trend. It was on trend and all of that. Like a lot of books, when they work at a high level, they're going to sell for 5, 10, 15 years. And so then they're going to be beyond the track, which is great. And that's what I think most authors should be striving for. A lot of people want the bestseller list, but I actually think what serves you more as an author, especially if you want a career writing, and as even as an entrepreneur or an expert, is to have that backlist bestseller. So the book that sells over and over and over again for years and years. And maybe gets a second edition or, you know, things like that. So that's really important. But a good book's going to sell every day. And so that anticipation on the market, that's really our job. And so I would, if I was an author, even on fiction, nonfiction, whatever, I would say, and children's is completely different based also, I'm going to say. So I don't know if they, this applies to children. They're literally in a different building at Penguin. So, but like for that, it's like, okay, I'm going to write the book I'm going to write, figure out what category it's in, which most authors also have a hard time doing, figure out what category it's really in, and then go look for somebody that works in that category. Luckily, category doesn't matter as much as it used to. And so you're you're looking more generally, right? Do they do how-to nonfiction? Do they do narrative nonfiction? Do they do speculative fiction? Do they do genre? And we have so, is it romance? Is it sci-fi? Is it, you know, whatever? Those really broad categories is really helpful then because then you, you will narrow it down. There's like literally hundreds or thousands of agents for any category. I would say you probably have at least 25 to 50 you could go to. And if that book's good, it's going to sell every day. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Okay. So mo- the talking about, let's focus on traditional publishing because of course, literary cool. agents were in the traditional publishing world with, with all of this. It's interesting to hear that you left traditional publishing, but I also know that you still specialize, and you've mentioned this, that you still specialize in traditional publishing. You actually only work with clients who are going to pitch to traditional publishers. I'd love to hear more of your insights on why you left, but why you still believe in traditional publishing as a business. Yeah, it's kind of a quandary, right? Yes, (laughs) yes. So so shed some light on that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about it because I think There's problems with traditional publishing. They're pretty well documented. Often they'll buy books and then sort of forget 
they bought them and not invest in them. They rely on authors to do a lot of publicity and marketing. The big thing that the rumor that everybody's like, they have all the control and they'll force you into a cover if you don't want and all of that. That's none of that's true. That's about the author advocating for themselves and seeing themselves as an equal partner, just like we talked about with literary agents, right? The mistake comes in where it's like, ooh, I have a book deal with Penguin, so I'd better be on my best behavior with everybody at Penguin because otherwise they're going to take it away from me. No, that's not real. You can advocate for yourself. You can stand up and say this cover sucks. That's where an agent comes in the hand and be like, yes, like, hey, I will help you. Traditional publishing is full of people that want to do their best by books. They're also filled with people that are overwhelmed, underpaid, and stressed the fuck out. Why I still believe in it is a really great question. And I think for me, I still think it's the best route for authors who want a large audience, who will want to be in airport bookstores, who want to be on the bestseller list, who want to walk into random bookstores and see their book. They still have the lock on distribution. They still have the lock on quality control. They still bring in improvementure to the whole process that self and hybrid just can't replicate. Now, hybrid is editorial quality, like editorial work, like having an editor really involved in your process, making sure there are as few of typos as possible. There's always going to be a typo. I get ready for that. If, you know, having creative control is really important to you over the copper, over the font, whatever, all that was tiny little decals that most of my authors are willing to like be like, I like this, it's fine. Most of them are like that, then it's fine. Then hybrid can be really helpful. And traditional, I still think is the best for reaching the most people, especially if you have a big platform or you're an entrepreneur or you're expert or you want to be, you know, you sort of want to be a fiction side of career writer. You want to be published over multiple books or any of that kind of thing. You want to, you know, if you're a fiction writer listening or watching this and you want to be Taylor Jenkins Reid, traditional publishing is probably your way to go. Now, there's exceptions that prove every rule. Colleen Hoover is a great example. But like, it's just very self-publishing is the wild, wild best. I've heard more bad stories about self-publishing than good. I hear horror stories about traditional publishing, but they're all sort of the same story. And a lot of it is like, I don't want to blame authors, but it's a lot, a lot of like a lack of adequacy or a lack of like sending up for oneself or a lack of knowledge. They didn't understand what they were going into. And so I think if you have all of those things, then it makes it a little easier and you're still in control. That's the other thing authors forget because they they give up their power and control to the agent or to the publisher that you're the author. We can't do any of this without you. So like, I can't do what I do without my authors. I, you know, the agent can't do what they do without their authors. The agent can't eat without their authors. The publishers can't print empty books. Could, so they need authors like everybody needs y'all and so when you all start showing up in the way that if i could close my eyes and make every author show up with like self-confidence and assuredness not being pushy or aggressive or demanding but also not being meek and please 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 that would be great and i think it would shift a lot of things that's a great answer what do you think are some of the main pitfalls of publishing and is there anything that we can do as writers to improve these yeah. So a lot of people write their books way too early. And I see this on the nonfiction side. I don't work with fiction, but I would assume that's the case too. Like there's a there's a sort of a cliche that like everyone's first novel sucks. I think it's probably true with some exception, right? Like I think there's exceptions to every rule. I'm a big fan of that. But in terms of like 
with nonfiction authors, especially entrepreneurs and experts, I see them rushing to write a book instead of writing content or putting themselves out there. And that's a huge mistake. You don't know what you don't know yet, meaning that you don't know what people actually want from you. You haven't proven any of this content yet. It's all just basically like your gut instinct or your past experience or the results of one person. And your book's not going to be as good or as effective. It, what I see a lot too is that people rush to self-publish because it's the easy way. And then you have a book out and you can say you have a book and voila. But then when you get trapped is like your subsequent books because you don't want to do that again. You want something bigger, but now we can't do anything bigger because you didn't sell that first book. Most yeah, likely it, way for you to cry on a phone call with me is that scenario. <laughs> Yes. Well, and then, of course, you know, a lot of authors, when they do go to traditional publishing, I know nonfiction can be the exception in that sometimes you are just publishing one book and that's what you're doing. But a lot mm -hmm. of authors do want to build a career. So they are going to need to write multiple books. And a lot of agents also want that. So, you know, mm -hmm. trying to figure yeah. out what that avenue is. I think that you have to find what your publishing route is for you. Personally, I always gravitate more towards tr traditional publishing for the reasons that you're saying. I also like the idea that you have a team that you're working mm -hmm. with. Like, you you know, your literary agent is going to be your number one. So building that, it's interesting because I know that a lot of times editors, for many reasons that you've shared, are changing jobs. There's a lot of things that publishing needs to work on with that salary being one of them, right? So editors are going to be changing. Literary agents don't change as often with, of course, can change agents all the time. But it's just, it is interesting to find that consistency within a business, but knowing that you always do have a team in some way that's helping you bring a book to publication. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you could build that team in the other models as well. But mm -hmm. I think for the most part, like the traditional publishing industry, that's going to be where that team element exists. Yeah. yeah. And that's actually one of the value adds that we bring for our clients too, whether they're working with a software proposal or their actual manuscript for their book or they're in author platform builders, our incubator. Like we call them, we're like, we're your book team the whole time, even if you're not working on your book. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Our our goal is to look out for the book and make sure that it, we're we're like handling that piece of your career. Much like a social media person would handle your social media presence, we handle that piece of your yeah. greatest ecosystem so you don't have to worry about it. As publishers become busy, like everyone who works in a publishing company, it's they're becoming more and more stretched. It's getting busier and busier. Competition is only going to continue to get more competitive. Working with a team, like you know, everyone at your team, that gives them that support system and that expertise in helping them make decisions that is filling maybe an area that they would be wanting support with traditional publishers, but not be getting in at the same time. So there are gaps that, yeah you know, other other businesses are now rising up to fill. So that's good. For sure. Like I always tell people to hire a publicist or a marketing person mm -hmm. for their book, usually about six to nine months out. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Moon is great for that. She's going to put her name out there. Or even like the editorial, you know, support. You can get that on the fiction side mm -hmm. or the nonfiction side, right? You could get that for every author. But one thing I'll say is that like book coaching out there, there's just a lot of variance. Like there isn't any freelance industry on people's past success, their reputation, their know-how. And so I would do a deep amount of research into your person and certainly ask for other clients with your same goals. Like I'm always happy to introduce potential clients to current clients. Anybody worth, you know, their medal should be able to do that as well. Are there any other myths about traditional publishing that you think writers often believe in but need to be busted? 
Uh, I mean, there's so many. The one about stealing your ideas is great. That one mm-hmm. always makes me laugh because like publisher has no reason to do that. Also copyright, like they're very heavy into copyright protections. So they're not going to do that. Also, they don't have time to do that, really. The biggest one, I think, is that people assume they can't get a deal. Mm-hmm. And that kind of breaks my heart because it's, it just doesn't make any sense because on the nonfiction side in particular, on the fiction side, it's all, it is a harder road, you know? You're competing against so much. But I also think if you're a great writer, you're going to get a deal. Mm-hmm. Now, it might not be a six-figure deal. You might not end up being Danielle Steele or Emily St. John Mandal or any of these other like people, but like you could still have a perfectly good deal that you're really happy with and your book's out in the world and you have a major publisher behind you and that's really great. Mm-hmm. On the nonfiction side, it's entirely within your control, mm-hmm. right? Because you can build a platform. Anybody can, I think. It takes a lot of grit and it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of personal growth. But you can do it if you want to. Yep. And that's a big part of what you're also doing at Megan Stevenson's books because you're supporting writers in their dreams and helping them see mm-hmm. that they can make dreams realities. They just might not know what to do and you're guiding them through that, which is great. Yeah, that's right. And so we start with education. So we have a workshop that we do usually twice a year and then it's recorded so people can check it out all year long if it's like, you know, not January or September. <laughs> So they can check it out. Right. Um, and that really educates about your three options. So traditional yeah. self-hybrid are the main three. Mm-hmm. I go through what's what's good for each of those, right? Like, you know, if you're really niche or you're writing a book that's like a weird shape and format, hybrid might be work, right? Mm-hmm. Hybrid might be better for you. And then, you know, from those workshops, we have our incubator, our author platform builders, membership. And then we work on proposal and manuscript too. So it's like, like I really... I love going on podcasts like this and thank you so much for asking me here today because I love educating authors. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bullshit online about it because historically, literary agents and traditional publishers haven't had the myth bust. They have plenty of business. They don't need to go out and like write mean comments on every Facebook ad that's full of bullshit the way mm-hmm. I kind of wish I could. I, would, mm-hmm. I, I kind of wish I wanted to, but then I was like, mm, do I really want to? But I see a lot of bullshit online and I'm sure you do too. That's just not true. And it's just meant to sell people into self-publishing products, right? And self-publishing can be very viable and it can be right. But like more often than not, I see people making uninformed decisions and that's not okay for me that I want to do my fair share of informing people so that then they can make an informed decision. If it's true, self-publishing, great. And if it's how-to book, great. We can help with that. And if not, that's cool. There's so many other people that are out in the publishing ecosphere online and otherwise that can help you. Absolutely. You've shared so many wonderful, great things. We are at the top of the hour. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move into a lightning three. So I ask you okay. three final questions. And you cool. know, normally I say try to answer these in one sentence, but if it goes beyond one sentence, that's totally fine yeah. with me. I think we just all love information anyway. So it, yeah, can totally, it can absolutely expand beyond one sentence. And this first one probably definitely will expand beyond one sentence. So you had a post on Instagram. You have a wonderful Instagram account, and I'll make sure that that's included in the show notes. And you explained why writers, they shouldn't fester on timing. And you used the HarperCollins strike as an example for this. And I'd love for you to explain what we can learn from the HarperCollins strike and how that can teach us about timing. And yep. you know, just like because traditional publishing takes a long time, right? So why does understanding and knowing about the strike matter specifically in how we can understand timing in traditional publishing 
and how we can have that relationship with timing in general. So the HarperCollins strike went on, I believe, from November to February, November 2022 to February 2023, and it was about salary and equitable pay. Good for them. They eventually won. But what that did was that agents and, and I personally did not want to go around. We didn't want to cross that line. And so we didn't want to submit to Harper, which means we didn't want to submit our projects and proposals, our books to Harper or Collins. And because we didn't want to do that, we weren't going to leave Harper out. They just didn't submit books. And what that ended up happening was that a lot of my clients, about five or six actually, and these amount sat, their proposals were ready in October and they sat. Um, and what happens then is that the agent is still going to shoot their shot when they think it's appropriate. They only do have one shot. So maybe it's going out now. Maybe it's going out in a month. Maybe they didn't think there was a lot at Harper for them, so they would have submitted it, right? I had another client in 2020 where her book was her book proposal was held, submitting it to publishers because of the election, right? But that three-month or six-month or even like a year delay is somewhat a big deal. When you look at the ecosphere of like the timing of a book is that it takes at least two years from the day we start working on proposals for your book to be out, if not more like three years. And then if you add platform building into that, another three years. So you're only looking at like a six or seven year project, which sounds like a long time, but like, I'm sure we all have done six or seven year projects. I mean, every kid is an 18 year project. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Every dog is a 15 year project, you know? But see, you know what I mean? And so I think everyone gets really like anxious about the timing, but again, a good book's going to sell every day. So these like sort of like, Things that are outside of your control and outside even the industry's control are not about you. Knowing that and you know, understanding the reality of that is really important if you do want to get into this business, though, because you know the reality is, and it takes time because there are lots of people that have to talk about a project, lots of people that work on a project, lots of promotion that happens before a project comes out. With nonfiction, if you haven't built your platform, you should be even building mm -hmm. your platform before you pitch where fiction writers can build a platform after they pitch, you know, so it's, there's a lot to it. But it reinforces the reality that writing a book is hard and it takes a long time. And if you're not up for that, then probably it's not the best thing that you should be doing. But if you are up for that, then you can really build something that's really beautiful and, you know, just embrace it so you're not stressed out about it the whole time. Yeah, it's a lot of hurry up and wait, really. Yeah. The second question I wanted to ask you is you have another great post on Instagram and it talks about my publishers pay advances. I, I would love to know how paying in advance nonfiction or fiction writers, how that benefits the author and when you know if it's something that wouldn't benefit them as much as a different type of deal. Yeah. So advance on earnings is what you get paid from the publisher. It's basically like, like you know those credit card checks that used to come in the mail? Or like you write a check to yourself and the credit you, that ends up on your credit card balance. That's kind of how it works. <laughs> and that it's like, let's say I paid you $100,000 in advance. Um, historically, that would be paid to writers like Hemingway or Steinbeck or, you know, uh, Gertrude Stein. as like, that was their money that they had to live on, right? But now that's not the case. They're not expecting you. Please do not quit your day job, everybody. They will literally murder you. Or they won't murder you, but they'll not be happy. They're not expecting you to quit your day job at all, unless you're like Colleen Hoover, then you can. But like otherwise, like they're expecting you to reinvest that. 
into your platform or into publicity or into a publicist or, or they're, they're expecting you to reinvest a decent amount of that. Uh, that's not like personal money, right? That's almost like seed capital or VC money. And it goes into your account. So an editor at Penguin Random House told me that they invest about $130,000 in every book they buy. So let's say you get $120,000 for your book advance. It's another two fifty in the red. If your book is $25, they're going to have to sell 10,000 copies of that in order to earn that back, right? At least, or no, is that 10,000? Is that math right? I think so. 10,000 copies, you get $250,000 back. And then you start earning royalty. And so that's how that math works. Luckily for entrepreneurs and experts, it's not such a big deal that that money, they understand that ROI and that that sort of like back and forth of it. And that's why they invest in our services, certainly, because it's going to grow their business by that much too, right? I think I answered all that question. The only then- reason that advance wouldn't work for somebody is that they don't think they were going to recoup the money. Okay. So if you're thinking, okay, hey, I can't sell 10,000 copies. I don't even want to sell 10,000 copies. Mm-hmm. That hybrid where you could, where you pay the money as the author, and then you also reap the benefit or self-publishing, same thing, that could be a better way to go. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. All good information to be aware of so that they can make their decisions. Also, or, the amount yeah. of the advance doesn't really, it, it kind of correlates to what the publisher sees as the value or the expected sales, but it doesn't always. Because again, human beings, subjectiveness. If you ever watch Antiques Roadshow, you know how much like an item's value like is dependent on people's opinion of it. Same idea, right? And so a higher advance, a lower advance, no big deal. Like I have a lot of people come to me and they're like, if I don't get $500,000, I'm not going to do this. And I was like, well, that's dumb because $500,000 is really rare in our industry. And also, like, it doesn't actually serve you because in order to get passive income from that book, you're going to have to sell way more copies down the first couple of years. So I'd rather have my authors get that $100,000 advance, earn it back really quickly, and then start getting that royalty money. Mm-hmm. Nonfiction in particular, like, well, fiction, I guess it works for fiction or nonfiction, but sometimes there are just those magical books that weren't even expected to make that much and blow up, you know? So exactly. So sometimes yeah. timing makes a big difference too. It's just a matter of, or influencers, right? If Reese Witherspoon is going to pick your book, it's going, going to probably become a bestseller, right? So sometimes sure. it works that way too. And for your final question, I'd love to know your opinion on when clients come to you and just in general with your experience, what do you usually think holds them back from writing and finishing their book? And how do you help them push through that or get over that so that they can write and publish their book? Sometimes I can help and sometimes I can't. So the things I could help are they don't know how to organize their ideas. It's all in their head. Need to get it out. They get intimidated by the freaking cursor on the blank page. What I can't overcome is the lack of belief. So that's a big thing. It requires so much personal growth to get to the place where you say, I deserve this. I want this. I'm going to go for this. And I don't have any problem when people come into our incubator or they come into even proposal and they get midway through the process and they think, oh, this is really hard. I don't want to do this anymore. That's not a big deal. What? I don't see that though as often as I see 
people putting family first or in the, not in a good way, not in a healthy way, or people just not believing in themselves enough to do that. It's weird because it's almost like there's like an over, like an overconfidence that I deal with. Like when people first come in, they, they're like all overconfident. Books going to be a bestseller. Like I have unique framework that everyone's going to want to know. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like a seventh Aladdin incubator. I'm like, great. Do you want to write a 350,000 word book or um, 50,000 word book? Awesome. Can we write a 500 word email? Mm-hmm. And then that throws up everything. Like this is a giant stop sign. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like if you're a writer, you're telling me you're a writer and you say, I want to write a book. I was like, I'm a writer. Do you know what I write? Blogs, email content, social media posts. Like I write so much shit now. Like when I started my entrepreneurship journey, I was like, when I started actually marketing my business, I was like, I don't know how people do this without being a writer. Right. Like, I have no idea. Like you'd have to pay somebody mm-hmm. wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Right. And yep. it's like, no, you, you call yourself a writer. Wonderful. To me, doesn't matter what you're writing. You can be writing a grocery list when you're a writer. Right. I mean, like, if you're making it really cool, be like, I want grapes because I want a beautiful spread on Saturday morning and brunch with my husband. I'm making that up a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> but well, if you, you can I mean, convince like, someone that they love that they love to read your grocery list, then you have excelled at writing. So. It's true. But like, yeah. it's it's like, it's not like the email thing or like the, you know, it's all kind of in the same wheelhouse. Right. Right. And so that's why I think it's so funny when people are like, I don't want to market my book. And I'm like, okay, cool. So you just want to write this thing and like not have anyone read it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. If you do, that's cool. Some people do that. And it's totally fine. Right. But then you're probably not going traditional publishing. No, definitely not. Cause they, they're not into like, could you imagine a world where you're running a company and you're creating, you're selling products you're paying money to the people that are creating the products and then they just don't sell. Can you imagine like you're a farmer's market and you're like, yeah, like Abigail can come and sell her melons, right? And then the day comes and it's like melon season and you're nowhere to be found. Yeah. Right. Like the melons are there, but nobody knows what they are. Nobody knows if they're ripe. Nobody can pay for them, buy them. Like So, but <laughs> just to reiterate, so what I'm hearing is that the number one thing that writers need to have that you can't help them with is believing in their idea. And sometimes there can be an overconfidence with that and you have to taper back and be like, okay, wait a second. Like, let's be realistic about where this might fit in the market and how we can achieve this. And the other one is you have to ultimately believe in your story because if you don't believe in it, no one else is going to believe in it. And ultimately you have to show up because if you aren't going to write this, then it won't happen. And that's the end of the story, right? Yeah. And the other thing about it, too, that I think like, I always like the authors that are like, I want to write this book because it's like the authors that I've seen be really successful are like, I've wanted to write this book because it's a childhood dream. But I also acknowledge that it's a product mm-hmm. and I'm going to go out and sell it. And the reason I want to sell it is because I, I know it's going to help people. Yes. Yes. And so I'm very or entertain them in the case of fiction. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do this thing. And it's a dual sided thing. It's like, I'm going to do this because I want to do it, but then also because it directly benefits me, right? Right. That's the way my business is set up. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to help you all with your dreams. Like, however many people were working with at the time, like 30, I'm going to help you all with your dreams. Don't get it twisted. I am also taking all that money you're paying us to make your dreams come true. 
to turn around and make me my dreams come true and my team's dreams come true. So it's a mutual dream factory here. Right, right. Well, and that's the ripple effect of it all, right? So it's like, you know, exactly. But also why I think people are committed when they enter relationships like this because they're they're fueling their dream and the other person's dream is getting answered at the same time. It's dreams. You're building dreams together. Yeah. And then guess what we get to do? It's we get to produce products that, you know, one of my books, The Dyslexic Advantage, sold over 100,000 copies. To people that are struggling with dyslexia. Yeah. Amazing. Right. That is amazing. Turn something they thought was a flaw into a strength. Yes. How cool is that? Like, I was like, this is great. And I'm so proud to be a part of it. Right. And so I think that's, that's something we forget too. When we think, when we start dreaming about New York Times, the Starless and what their cover going to look like and all that, we forget about the reader and you can't do that either. Something I always say is that, you know, the saying goes that once you publish your book, it's no longer your book. It's the reader's book and how the reader. No, that's Right. So that's where it's like, well, yeah, yeah it's, they're you're open to Yep. Yeah, exactly. Well, those are wonderful answers. Thank you so much. And thank you for hanging out with me a little longer to share these so lightning three and expanding on it. Tons to learn from this. I hope that the listeners listen again, take out their notepads, take their notes because Yay. there's a lot to pick apart. And then, of course, if they want to find you, where can they find you, Megan? So I'm on Instagram, as you know, um, at Meg Stevenson. I also have a brand new quiz on my website. We just redesigned the website to help authors. It literally takes less than a minute. If you're not a good fit for me, even if you're a fiction author or you're writing a memoir or a children's book, we have resources for you. So go ahead and take that quiz. It is at MeganStevenson.com, M-E-G-H-A-N-S-T-E-B-E-N-S-O-N.com. Take it to forward slash quiz. But if you go on that first landing page, you'll see like work with us and you click that and you get the quiz right there and we will follow up with you. Great. And to reinforce for the listeners out there, I will be including all of that in the show notes. So quick links, just go ahead and check out the show notes and then you can find it there. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit Match. I genuinely appreciate each and every listener and cannot thank you enough for your support. Whether or not that means that you're showing up each week to learn from publishing experts with me or sharing Lit Match with kindred spirits like you who have a dream of building a career as an author and publishing books with a traditional publisher, I see you and I am incredibly grateful. I'd love to hear what you learned from Megan and hope that you'll continue the conversation with me and fellow writers on social media. Feel free to tag me if you share this episode anywhere in your social media accounts at Abigail K. Perry. If you'd like to support Lit Match and haven't had a chance to yet, you can do so by rating and reviewing the show and even sharing it with just one to two or maybe more new writing friends. Even just sharing it with one to two other listeners makes an incredible difference because it helps me reach and teach more writers like you who want to learn more about their writing craft and the submission process. And I've said this now multiple times, but I really do mean it. I am sincerely grateful for your enthusiasm and your support. Until next time, happy writing. And if you're in those query trenches, please do continue to persevere. The work that you are doing is meaningful and your voice matters. I hope to hear from you when you sign with your dream literary agent. And I can't wait to celebrate your book when it comes out.